All right, good morning. It is great to see you. And although Dan Smith is on vacation this week, and that's a real good thing, uh, he won't necessarily hear this, but I am super grateful for Dan preaching last week because it enabled uh, my wife and I, wait, aren't you on vacation this week? Why are you here? Hey, thank you for preaching last week. It was a a gift. Jessica and I went on a, a trip. It was our 25th wedding anniversary this year. I had dreamed, yeah, that is pretty cool. I had dreams of taking her on like a Mediterranean cruise, but we settled for driving across the country to uh, the woods uh, or the mountains of Tennessee. And, uh, and it was pretty spectacular just being together. We saw some cool mountains. These aren't like the Rocky Mountains, but they were cool mountains. And that will actually come back in just a moment to our text today. By the way, if you want to open up your Bibles, or if you've got it on a phone, you can do that too. Micah. Micah chapter 4, I have never in my entire time here at Berean preached out of the minor prophets, and we will be doing that not only today, but in two weeks we're starting a, a, a series in Malachi, another minor prophet. And just so you know, minor prophet doesn't mean because they didn't make the major leagues and they weren't quite good enough, it just means that their books are a little shorter. But we're going to be in Micah chapter 4 today, but before I get there, just a couple of quick announcements. Number one, to let you know about... If you show up about this time next week at the 9.15, you'll be right on time because we're having one gathering at 9.30 over Church on the Lawn, right over that way. But breakfast starts at 8.30. Pancakes, sausage, juice, we'd love to have you. So if it works out for your family to be here, we would love to have you. And uh, 8.30 is breakfast, 9.30, one gathering. And so be sure to tell your friends, don't come past 9.30, it's just the one time. So that's that. Second thing to let you know about is that we have, and this is something that we do once a month, it's the last Sunday of the month, we have what's called Lunch with Leaders today. If you're newer to Berean or you feel like you're not super connected, we would love to host you today. It's not until 12.15, so you probably would go, but you're welcome to come back. We'll feed you. We'll give you the lunch. It will take about an hour, 12.15 to about 1.15, and we'd love the chance just to get to know you a little bit better. So it's a little bit uh, smaller size group, and if you like that sort of thing, Again, we're just going to meet in the commons right out here, 1215. Okay, final thing uh, that I'm going to kind of steer us toward today is that I have a picture that was hanging. It was a painting in my parents' house as a kid growing up. Now, can you all see that reasonably well? So uh, you've got the deer that are there in the, uh, in with the lake, and then you've got those mountains. And I just remember as a kid, I used to stare at that painting and just be like, I wonder what's up in those mountains. I wonder if I could crawl into that painting and hike up there. I don't know if it's the the clouds coming down that are golden, but it felt like maybe the Lord is there. Like, that'd be so cool, like God's mountain. And, And then, as I was kind of reading through some of the minor prophets, I hit this with Micah to them. You see, we live in a world that's really uncertain. We live in a world where it's uncertain. Our own bodies are uncertain. We We have health crises. We live in financially uncertain times. We live in political and socially uncertain times. Upheaval. We live, I I was just looking, um, the weather forecast for where my parents live, you know what the high is supposed to be for their area this week? 119. It's up in Washington State. The western half of the country, incredible drought, uncertainty, weather patterns, all sorts of things. Is there any hope for the future? Sometimes you can get a little discouraged. It's like, damn. And and that's where we're going to go today. And we're going to to walk up on this mountain a little bit. 
because we get to talk about the mountain of God. So what I wanna do is I want to engage you. If you have your scriptures, would you open them up? Micah chapter four, and I'll begin to read. We're gonna look at one through five. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in, his, in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray together. And I might encourage you to just flip your hands up like this, like we're going to receive something from the Lord right now. Father, we are coming, and whether our physical hands are upturned or maybe our hearts and our minds are directed, we're saying we need to hear from you today. We thank you for this scripture, which is living and active. Would you use it and the power of your Holy Spirit to speak the words that we need to hear today? Words of encouragement, words of challenge, words leading to repentance, whatever is needed, we want to hear from you. Speak, Lord, we're listening. And anyone who agrees with that can say together, amen. amen. All right. All right, if you have your, your notes and you want to take notes, we're going to jump right into uh, Micah chapter 4, uh, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Let me just make sure you understand this. That a lot of times when prophetic speakers are, are communicating, a prophet, remember, is simply someone who speaks on behalf of God. Now, in this case, he is speaking about something that is going to be coming in the future, somewhere in the latter days, and there's a lot of discussion about this, but I think it's pretty safe to say that Micah is seeing something that's coming in the future. There is this something that's in this future, and this has to do with, in those latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord. So when we start to see the mountain of the house of the Lord, this is the place where God will dwell. This is his house. Now, are we talking about a literal place that's a mountain? Are we talking about like an imagery? And really, as I studied this, you could make a case that this is going to be a literal mountain where the house of the Lord is going to be lifted up. Did you know, in the Old Testament times, do you know what the house of the Lord was? It was called the temple. So the house of the Lord, the temple was built in Jerusalem, which is actually on seven different hills. That topography has the house of the Lord on a hill. Now, maybe there's going to be this, you know, cataclysmic kinds of movement, and, and the, the house of the Lord is going to be this huge mountain. Perhaps it is very literal that way. But the mountain of the Lord, it shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here's the first question that we're kind of running after right now. What is God's mountain? Now, let me, let me just kind of pause for a second. Especially if you have small kids, can I encourage you? This is awesome to talk to your kids about. Lizzie and I have been having lots, our, my five-year-old, we've been having lots of conversations when I put her down at night. We'll start talking about God's mountain. So if your kids are like, well, what is God's mountain? Well, maybe it's going to be a literal mountain one day that will be lifted up and God's dwelling place will be there. Or maybe we're talking more imagery. That's quite possible, too, that God's mountain, this place where he dwells, will be lifted up. Mountains is an image that is throughout Scripture. Seriously, you could do this study yourself. You can go home after I preach today, go home and study, look on BibleGateway.com, type in mountains, and just see where it takes you. I'll take you a few places today, but this is not exhaustive. But in this mountain, there's another place that immediately caught my mind. Let me take you back. There's a ruler. His name's Nebuchadnezzar. He's a Babylonian king. And he had a dream, and he calls all of his wise men together, and he says, look, I need you to interpret my dream. And so they say, great, just tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. And he said, no, you tell me the dream, then you interpret it. And all of his wise men are like, nobody ever asked. Like, no, we can't do this. They can't. And, and he says, no, I'm firm about it. If you can't tell me my dream and interpret it, I'm killing you all. Now, they were in a, a world of hurt, but there was a young man, a Hebrew, who had been pulled out of Israel and brought to Babylon. His name was Daniel. Daniel, as the, the captain of the guard came, and Daniel said, hey, give me just a little bit of time. And he sought the Lord, and he asked the Lord, will you tell me about this dream and then give me its interpretation? And the Lord did. Here was the dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream a statue with a head of gold. And then he saw like chest and arms of silver and a midsection and thighs were bronze and legs were iron and then feet were iron partially mixed with clay. And and, and what we find out in the the interpretation of the dream is it's representing different kingdoms. The head of gold, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you and the Babylonian kingdom, you are the head of gold, but there's a kingdom coming after you that's not as great as yours, but it'll be like silver, and it's the Medes and the Persians. Interesting that there's two arms part of the statue, Medes and Persians. And then this this bronze area, this will be the Greeks, and then there will be the, the, the legs of iron we know to be the Roman Empire, the early Roman Empire, and then the feet of iron mixed with clay are the latter Roman Empire. It's just amazing, and you can go and look. Historically, you can see that that's exactly the way history unfolded, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. But then Daniel says there was an interesting part of the dream that after you saw all these earthly kingdoms that were there, the progression of the kingdoms, look at this, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. That's beautiful. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of these kingdoms could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great, what's the next word if you're following along? It's a mountain. And it filled the whole earth. This stone, not cut by human hands, this stone is of divine origin. 
and it becomes this incredible mountain, the mountain of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't time that, but that was awesome. <laughs> On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all... Wait, I think that's a little bit further along than where I was. Let me go back. We'll get there. All good. Okay. There we go. Daniel then talks a little bit later. Verse 44. In those days, when the the kings, uh, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, whose kingdom of gold was going to give way to a kingdom of silver, give way to a kingdom of bronze, of iron, of iron mixed with clay, this kingdom, this rock that grows into a mountain, not cut by human hands of divine origin, this is never going away, and nobody's going to be superseding it. Look in verse 45. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. Forever, this mountain is going to stand. This is a sure and solidified hope that the mountain of God is coming. It's going to be forever and without end. Isaiah 9, 7. This is a great, it talks about the the messenger of God, that the increase of his government, there will be no no end to that increase. And, And the throne of David and over his kingdom and to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For some reason, it's advancing my slides for me. You guys could check that. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Uh, This is the mountain of God, the place where God dwells, and it's coming, and it will be certain. All right. Let's go back. I guess that's our question. Here's the question. So what happens on God's mountain? Let's go ahead and take a look at this. What happens on God's mountain? This is where it's been so much fun to take my five-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, and just say, let's look at what happens on God's mountain. Go, first, go to Micah chapter 4, that God will judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. What I love about this is that any kind of dispute that arises, God can judge justly. I don't know if y'all look at the world today. I look at the world and I just think, man, there's such a lack of justice on so many situations. People who are oppressed or taken advantage of or marginalized or trafficked or exploited, and they don't seem to experience the justice that they need. On God's mountain, he will decide justly. And nothing will stop that. I love this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses three and four. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see and decide disputes by what his ears hear. His, our ability to judge right now is only what we can perceive with our eyes and our ears, but his ability to judge is with righteousness. And he'll judge the poor, and he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Make no mistake, the righteous judge on his mountain, everything will be brought to justice fully. Nothing will escape the right justice of the God. I love that, but look at what else happens. We're going to decide. So I I tell Lizzie, I'm like trying to put it in kind of a five-year-old language. It's like, Lizzie, everyone will get 
what they deserve, which kind of then gets a little scary because you're like, oh man, I know what I deserve and that's not good. But hold that thought. So he's going to judge between the peoples and then they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, quick question. Those of you out or who are watching also at home, you can raise your hand on this. How many people own at least one sword right now? Or a spear? Okay, so we're, it's kind of like, yeah, this, uh, does this really relate to us? The idea is that these are weapons geared for war, geared for hostility. For the record, we all have a weapon on our person that is geared for hostility. Think about that for a moment. There are ways that we can use our tongues as a weapon of hostility, but what's going to happen is that these swords and these spears are going to be beaten in, not to instruments of hostility and destruction, but instruments of cultivation, plowshares and pruning hooks. Don't, mess, don't miss this part, that on the mountain of God, we're still going to do work. There's going to be plowshares, there's going to be pruning hooks, there's going to be things to do, there's going to be experiences to to explore and to understand. We're not going to be disembodied like floating on a cloud or strumming a harp or, you know, doing something we're bored with all day. On the mountain of God, we're going to have tasks and opportunities and adventure. Like, I'm so excited for this mountain of God. Can't wait to get there. And I talked to Lizzie about how exciting it will be that we will have things that the Lord is giving us to do. And on that mountain, there will be no hostility. We won't use our tongues to slice someone into shreds. We won't gossip about other people or slander them. We won't get angry and and lash out. We won't do all these things. In fact, there will be a complete absence of hostility entirely on the mountain of God. I don't know about you, I really would like to go there. But then there's this nagging part in the back of my mind that says, yeah, but I might ruin it. Because I am not like that. Look at verse four. It says that they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. This is a place where they can sit secure and, and protected under the vine and the fig tree, humans and creation working in tandem. It's amazing. And no one shall make them, if you're reading along, what's that next word? No one shall make them. Wow, what a great place. Some of us need to hear this today. It's like we are so gripped by fear. Fear of, you know, fill in that blank. And then there's a mountain coming where the fear will not be present. The hostility will be ended. The mouth of the Lord of hosts. That, when it says Lord of hosts, it's talking about the mouth of the Lord of armies. The mouth of the Lord who has power has spoken. This is the way it's going to be. And this mountain, not cut by human hands, is going to last forever and never be passed to anybody else. And it's going to be peace. Security, no fear. And all the peoples will walk in the name of, of its God. All the peoples will walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So then I, I pulled up other uh, thoughts for Lizzie on, on what happens on this mountain. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. 
The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy... Ah, there it is, says the Lord. Nothing gets hurt. Nothing gets destroyed. You have peace and harmony in creation. This is what the mountain is going to be. And so I'd lean in. I'd be like, listen, you want to go to God's mountain? It actually reminded me a little bit of a joke. My dad has told me this plenty of times. He's like, there was a, a little boy. He was sitting in church service, and the pastor's like, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven? And the little boy, everybody's raising their hand, but the little boy is not. And finally, the, the little boy's parents are like, why, why aren't you raising your hand? Why don't you want to go to heaven? And he said, well, I, I, I don't know. I thought the preacher was getting a load up to go tonight. <laughs> so I tell Lizzie that, hey, this mountain, it's coming But right now, we're still living right here. But, oh, we have this hope of what's coming. Nothing will be destroyed. No fear. No hostility. Take another look. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Hands, I really want to see them. How many people like the idea of feast of rich food? Here's what I'm really excited about. Feast of rich food where you don't have to count calories. Feast of rich food where you don't have to like be afraid I'm slipping into a food coma and then it's, I'm going to pay for it later. No, like feast of rich food for, made for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of uh, rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. God says, I'm going to give you on my mountain the best meal you have ever eaten. And whether this is an actual literal meal or it's symbolic and, and, and imaging something of God's bounty and his generosity, that's what he's giving to us on his mountain. Do you want to go to the mountain? I'm not getting a load up for tonight. <laughs> but I hope that today you're like, man, God's mountain, that's Look at verse 7. It goes on, and he will swallow up on this mountain. This is like the Gensu knife commercial, but wait, there's more. Like, he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all people, the veil that's spread over all nations. What's he talking about? What's this, what's this covering that's cast over all the peoples? What's this, what's this veil that's spread over the nations? What's he going to swallow up? Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from their eyes, from their faces, and the reproach, and all the shame, and the regret of his people he will take away from all the For the Lord has spoken. Do you want to go to the mountain? I want to go to the mountain, and I'm telling Lizzie about this, and I'm, I'm tearing with her all these amazing things. Like, do we have hope for the future? Yes, we have hope for the future. Like, it's going to be amazing. This is what God has designed for people. Okay, so this is where, and I hope you don't think me sadistic or mean. I love my daughter dearly, but I said, I got to ask this next question. Who gets to go to God's mountain? Because I want to go, and she wants to go, and who gets to go? So now we look at uh, Psalm 24, because it says really clearly, ask this question, and then it answers us. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who gets to go up the mountain? Who 
shall stand on his holy, in his holy place? So here it is. He or she, this is, could be either male or female, the person who has clean hands, which I'm like, oh, good. Well, the pandemic has been good for something. <laughs> uh, it's been good for a lot of things and a lot of refining, but we're not talking about physical clean hands. We're talking, when he says clean hands, he then also says, and a pure heart. And we realize what he's talking about is when he says clean hands, he's talking about the things externally that we do, the things we create, the, the ways that we, that we act. And, and we're supposed to have clean actions, and we're supposed to have a pure heart. Our thoughts, intentions, motives, attitudes. Can we really say that we have clean hands and completely pure motivations, attitudes, intentions, and thoughts. And then it will go on, the person who doesn't lift up their soul to what's false and does not swear deceitfully. And I asked her, I said, Lizzie, do you ever lie? And with these beautiful eyes, she just looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> Liar! Psalm 15 that Mac read at the beginning of our time this morning, the end of the, the song set. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The person, now I'm going to ask you just for a moment, put yourself here. Can you, are these true about us as we say them? The person who walks blamelessly. That means completely without blame. The person who does what is right and speaks truth in his or her heart. Now, I'm going to read the rest of the psalm again because I want you to hear this and I want you to think about for yourself, does this describe me? The person who does not slander, speak badly about anyone with his or her tongue who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach, a resentment, a grudge against her friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but someone who honors those who fear the Lord. The person who swears to their own hurt and does not change. I always keep every one of my words. Who does not put out his or her money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, is unswayed by the opinions and the trappings of anybody else. The person who does these things shall never be moved. And so as I explain this to Elizabeth at a five-year-old level, and I'm like, Elizabeth, you can't go to God's mountain. And her face just fell. Now, again, I'm not doing this because I don't love that girl dearly, but she's got to feel that. Because the question really is, who can be that good? 
Who in the world can be so good as Psalm 24 and Psalm 15 elucidate flawlessly, 100%, all the time, clean hands, pure heart. It's not me, and it's not Lizzie. I was looking at some other scriptures that just kind of brought this home, and they're all over the Old and the New Testament, Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, all our righteous acts. The best things that we have to bring are like filthy rags. And just so you understand the imagery, the filthy rags were rags that women during their menstrual cycle would sit upon to soak up the blood. That is what our best Actions can be represented by. The most righteous part of me is like that. They have all turned aside. How many people? Turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good. Not even, not even one. Paul states it really clearly in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this is where I I, I explained to Lizzie, I said, Lizzie, you cannot go to God's mountain because you aren't perfect like what it's talking about. And her little face fell, and I said to her, but daddy can't go either. Neither of us qualifies to go on to God's mountain that we so desperately want to go to. And that's what I want you to hear today. I don't care how good you think you are, you can't qualify to go to God's mouth. And so this is where we can be tempted to kind of be despairing. Well, pff, I, can't, I can't be that, so then do I just kind of go and live however I want to? No, I've got some amazingly good news. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a story about a man named Abraham God comes to Abraham, and, and at one point earlier in his life, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. You don't have a son. You're an old man. Your wife is old, but I'm going to give you a son. He's going to be a promised son, and through him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Through him. The son is born. His name is Isaac. Isaac gets a little bit older, and God comes back to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son. Now, immediately, there are all kinds of bells that should go off in your mind. Why is this loving God coming and asking Abraham to sacrifice, to kill his son? There's a lot of things that we could go after. One of them that I know that I can speak to is that Abraham knew this is the child of promise. And even if I sacrifice my son, God can raise him back to life. My own personal opinion, you can do studying on yourself, but I believe this was about Abraham being able to understand that when God called him to give up even the most precious thing, that he would be willing to do it. So Abraham and Isaac, they go to this sacrifice. And the wood is on Isaac, and they are actually going up a hill. Isaac asks the question, Father, we, we, I know we're going to make the altar, and I've got the wood for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide. Multiple times in the story, it does seem that Isaac is asking this question, and each time Abraham says, God will provide. 
And at the point that he makes the altar and he puts the wood on the altar and it says then that he bound Isaac's hands and feet. And just for the record, Abraham's old right now. Isaac is a young, probably strong guy, but he most likely willingly allowed himself to be tied. Is put up on the altar And as Abraham stands over him with the knife and is ready to plunge it into him, the Lord says, stop. Don't stretch out your hand and hurt the boy. And Abraham sees that there is stuck in a thicket is a ram caught by its horns and that God provided a sacrifice, that ram in place as a substitute for Isaac. Abraham gets Isaac down off the altar. They get the ram, they kill the ram and they offer it as a sacrifice. Now, this is what's so powerful. This mountain, this hill that they had climbed up, it's called Mount Moriah. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, And I've held off on, here's what this thing is. This is what they said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There's some speculation, and and I don't know that you can say this with any degree of absolute certainty, but there's some speculation that that same mountain where Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, but God provided a substitute on that same mountain or one that close to it, there was another Lamb of God. On a hill called Calvary, on the mountain of God, on Calvary's hill, that's where God provided for all of us who can't be good enough to get to his hill, who cannot be blameless and clean hands and pure heart, and we can't go to his mountain. But God said, I'm going to send a sacrifice in your place. I, on the mount of the Lord Calvary, I will provide it. And Jesus, the perfect human, perfect God, was willing to then, willing to stretch out and endure all of the justice that our sin deserved. All the ways we've never measured up to Psalm 24 and Psalm 15 and a myriad of others, Jesus said, I'll take that. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, as he hung there perfect, God allowed the sin of anyone who would fling themselves onto the mercy of God. Jesus absorbed their sin. And then Jesus was that sacrifice in our place. He said, I'll take all of your sin and I'm gonna give you all of my perfection. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. I will give you my perfection. And so now you and I, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, now we can go to the mountain. But it was the blood of Jesus spilled out. His death that paid for our sin. Now I'm gonna ask you really openly, look, Just because you're here at a church, and some of you have been in church for a long time, that does not make you right with God. What makes us right with God is when we come to the spot where we say, I do not deserve to go to your mountain. I have all this junk inside of me that it's got to get dealt with, and I can't deal with it myself. Jesus, I got to fling it onto you. At 
at the cross, you got to take every bit of it, and I need your perfection. And he says he'll do it. Have you, have you by, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace, you've been saved by faith. And it's not from yourselves. This is a gift from God. It's not by works so that nobody can boast. Have you grabbed hold of that gift? Because I hope that you want to go to that mountain. I want to go to that mountain. And our ticket, our ability to go on that mountain is not found in ourselves, but in the righteousness of Jesus. I wrote myself a note our righteousness means nothing. Filthy menstrual rags. But the righteousness of Christ absolutely beautifully flawless. 100% untainted. And he gives us access to the mountain. Oh, Jesus and God, in his mercy and his grace, holds it out to us today. This is a little rhetorical, but do you want to go to the mountain? And today, if you have never done this, grab hold of Jesus. Jesus, you got to take all of the things that would separate me from your mountain. And if you have flung your sin to Jesus, in faith, grabbed hold of him, said his sacrifice of the shedding of his blood, the pouring out of his life, his, his sacrificial death, if you have done that, then, oh, may our hearts be so thankful for that reality. Because seeing this mountain that's coming allows us to live well today. I'm going to pick that up again next week. So I hope that you join us for Church on the Lawn we see how we are made for another king. Would you bow your heads with me? I would love to give you a quiet moment. And, and I'm, just let me set it up this way. If you have never, if you have never grabbed hold of that gift, there's no special secret words. God is much more concerned with the state of our heart and our attitude than our externals. So you can just tell the Lord, whatever, like, God, I want to be on your mountain, but I get this, that I've been separated, and my sin has kept, keeps me from, I need Jesus to take my sin. Stuff as simple as that. For those of you who have already made that decision, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Friends, are you walking in the good works that God has for you? And maybe there's some repentance that's needed today some beautiful repentance that we are fully able to walk into because of the blood of Jesus on the mountain of the Lord God provide. I'm gonna give you a couple of moments to deal with the Lord and then I'll close us with prayer.
If the Holy Spirit is communicating something to you right now, please don't harden your heart. Father, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided, and it was provided at Calvary. That sacrifice, that substitution that makes us qualified to go to your mountain, and we long to be there, where death is swallowed up and tears are wiped off our faces, rich food, well-aged wine, no hostility, no fear, work that's satisfying, oh God. Ignite our hearts for this. Forgive us for the times when we get so settled in this world and we think that we've got to get all of it here and there's something so much better coming. Just to live in light of it. Oh, Lord, thank you. You love these people so dearly and not just these, but, but so many. Speak clearly this next week. Remind us of mountains. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen.